Today we look back on 40 years of Jedi's lightsabers and Death Stars with my guests, Roger Christian, Anthony Daniels, Pablo Hidalgo, and Riz Ahmed. The one thing that eluded me was the lightsaber because I knew, you know, Arthur was my big legend and right. I knew this sword was going to be <laughs> the iconic image of this film. I'd begun to accept that this was what I was given by some power, force, whatever you call it, um, to give to the world, he, he said wryly, or with a smirk or whatever. Um, I've been really lucky to to be given this chance. I carved his little arms out at night with a penknife. I, like many people my age or thereabouts, got swept up into it simply by being a child in the 70s. So uh, there was really no choice in the matter. It was such a juggernaut and it was such a, a thing that appealed to, to kids in that day that you kind of grew up being a Star Wars fan. I broke down aeroplanes and made the sets out of them. Ultimately, it just feels like it's a real privilege and an honour to be part of a, a story world that so many people are invested in. I've said this before, everyone out there has a memory like this about something that they happen to be passionate about. Right. It could be hockey statistics, it could be baseball scores, it could be classic car details. In my case, it happens to be this fictional universe. Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krauss. I'm Richard Krauss. Check your lightsaber at the door, saddle up to the bar, order yourself a Bantha Blood Fizz, and sit back as we talk to some people who were integral to the making of Star Wars. Now, February 3rd, 1959, February 9th, 1964. That's the day the music died and the date it was reborn on The Ed Sullivan Show. Both days burned into the collective memories of pop culture fanatics everywhere. But what about this? What about May 25th, 1977? If you were a teenager then, chances are you felt the earth shift. It was the day Star Wars opened, kicking off a cultural phenomenon that continues to this very day. We're 40 years after the event. There is now a new Star Wars movie every year. We've got a standalone, followed by a continuation of the main story, followed by another standalone, followed into eternity, or infinity, probably. Uh, I want to have a look back. I want to have a look back at some of the people that were there at the very beginning, and some of the people that are joining come lately, people that have joined the Star Wars phenomenon a little bit later. So, we're going to talk to, in no particular order, Roger Christian. If you're a Star Wars fan, you know him as the man who created the lightsaber, among other things. Anthony Daniels needs no introduction. Uh, C-3PO is one of the most iconic characters in movie history, and he's the man in the suit. Pablo Hidalgo is a guy who works for Lucasfilms, now Disney. And he kind of is one of the people that's in charge of the world. He makes sure that if they say Bantha Blood Fizz, that it means something in terms of the story, in terms of the way it all connects together. And then Riz Ahmed uh, was one of the stars of the much-anticipated Rogue One, a Star Wars story. We'll get to all that uh, in just a little while. So let's go back. Let's go back uh, to the very beginning with Roger Christian. 
He's a fascinating guy and an Oscar award winner for his work on Star Wars. And he is someone who has a, a very detailed and, and really interesting memory of those early days before anybody knew that Star Wars was going to be the giant hit and pop culture sensation that it has turned out to be. Your involvement with the original Star Wars movies is the stuff of legend. Right. And uh, let's talk about the lightsaber. You are the father of the lightsaber. The lightsaber uh, was initially sort of made from bits and pieces of things. Tell me the story of it. I, uh, it, For me, it was the hardest thing. When we started the movie, we have four months in London with George Lucas. That was John Barry and the designer, myself, and Les Dilly, the art director, that was it, and George and Gary. And I hired a carpenter who lives here now, by the way, but um, Bill used to do all the props for Monty Python, and literally we had no money. He would bring from his garage at home plywood and <laughs> wheelbarrow wheels, and we made R2-D2 in wood. There's a picture of it in the book. And I found a lamp top from a scrap pile that fitted, and I found airplane scrap nozzles for lighting and uh, air, and I stuck those on ITD too. And I, I carved his little arms out at night with a penknife because we couldn't do anything else. <laughs> and we were building it around Kenny Baker because if we couldn't get R two D two to work, we didn't have a movie. Right. And also, we made the light, the land speeders out of rubbish. I mean, wheelbarrow wheels. We made the first ones trying to get the size and the shapes right until the movie Fox believed in it enough that they greenlit it. And we went into EMI and I'd already made all the weapons. I, my budget was so small, I couldn't make anything in the studio. So I'd, I'd always wanted them this way anyway. I found real guns and I adapted them and showed George and he loved them. That was the look. The one thing that eluded me was the lightsaber because I knew... You know, Arthur was my big legend, and I right. knew this sword was going to be <laughs> the iconic image of this film. So I searched and searched and scrap, and I, I broke down aeroplanes and made the sets out of them. I had masses of junk, and I'd collect anything like a magpie right. so much. I had to move to a second office. Mine was filled <laughs> with pieces. Nothing, nothing could make a lightsaber. And then I made Luke's binoculars. I found an old camera and took it apart and stuck another different uh, element where it could flip up. And I knew the the audience couldn't see the screen wouldn't light up because we couldn't do it. And right. I, I went to buy two lenses for the front. And we had a photographer's shop that I always rented my equipment from or we bought in London. And... In desperation, because we were very near, we, they were the film only... we triggered in January about the 5th and everything had to go to Tunisia by the end of March to shoot. Where the movie was April. being shot. Yeah, yeah, this is a huge epic. Yeah. I mean, two months to prep a science fiction movie, it was just insane. I never slept. And um, I knew I was getting near to the time and they kept bugging me saying, you know, we've got to send something out. And I asked the owner, I said, have you got anything here I could find? Anything might be interesting. And he's he just said, go and look under that shelf. There's a load of boxes. I haven't looked at them for 10 years. And I pulled out the first box, took off the lid. As I undid the tissue paper, there were these flash handles. I just from went, a camera, oh, like a, my like God. From a, a, a small movie camera, right? It was, no, it's a press camera. Ah. So the press used, and this went on the side with a big chrome disc right. that would bounce the flash. Um 
I just went, oh, my God, here it is. And so I raced back to the studios. I stuck T-strip that I used on the Sterling submachine guns for the stormtroopers around for a handle. I'd broken some calculators down and I found these bubble strips where the light was and I thought, that's nice. And there was a clip on the side and I didn't want to take it off because it held the two pieces together. So I put the bubble strip in there, found some chrome tape, stuck it round the name and called George over and said, you better come and look at this. And he just held it. He held it and just smiled, and that was George's yeah. affirmation. Wow, you found it. <laughs> and all we did was stuck a ring on the end, uh, like a, a little D-ring, so Luke could hang it on his belt in Tunisia. And that went straight out. I made two quickly, and then I made two or three more, which we gave to the special effects boys, because I one day in, in our... We had a morning coffee or tea, me tea meeting in those days, so... I suggested that we were doing stuff with um, some exhibition stuff and we painted front projection material and it kind of glowed. So they thought, well, that's a good idea. Why don't we put a, what, a rod to look like the blade? And we did, got the special effects boys. They actually mounted the motor so it slightly wiggled like that. And that, with a light on it, actually gave a light. Some of it, you can see it. Um, that looked like the laser. Yeah. yeah, so they'd have, they had in those days, no CGI in those days, they had to um, rotoscope on and make the blade. But Wh there was Which means drawing on every single frame. Every it frame. takes forever. It does. So they had to do that, but they, at least they had something to key onto yeah. sometimes. So that worked. And if you look at the pictures making of, you can see them fighting Alec Guinness <laughs> with wooden sticks. <laughs> and uh, I was on the ranch a few months ago in the archives and they'd found in a box one of the original ones so they took a picture of me and they put a flash and it was glowing i'm there with the original that's kind amazing of blade. And, and these cost you were saying uh, when we were in commercial break about eight pounds each probably to about make. eight pounds so i made 20 for, bucks maybe yeah, you know 15 yeah, 20 bucks 15 20 bucks because i bought about six of them um and Gary Kurtz kept them, the producer, and he sold one two years ago for $250,000. That's a good investment. Not bad. Uh -huh. so. well, how do you feel now? We've only got about a minute left. How do you feel now? The other day, I was uh, on St. Clair Avenue in Toronto, and there was a cake store, and there were there was an R2-D2 cake in the window, and I, I knew you were coming, and I was thinking, <laughs> I wonder how Roger feels about that as he's, you know, passing by, because it, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. I'm, I'm really happy. I've always been a huge supporter of these films because they are the new fairy stories. They are the new myth. George was very careful to do that and children need it and that's why they connect and I get more and more children now than I ever did asking how I did this, can you sign this, all that stuff. So I think this is the King Arthur for the cinema age and I'm really proud of George and what he did. Try and imagine the Star Wars movies without Roger Christian. They would have been way less cool. You want to know more about Roger Christian, more about Star Wars and his work on Alien and his work on so many other films like The Life of Brian, it goes on and on and on. Pick up his book. It's called Cinema Alchemist, Designing Star Wars and Alien. It's available where fine and not so fine books are sold. Next up, Anthony Daniels. Now, having one of the most recognizable voices in movie history can lead to some pretty surreal moments. Just ask Anthony Daniels. He's played C-3PO in all eight Star Wars movies. Now, he once rented a car with a very familiar voice on the GPS. He'll tell you that story in just a couple of minutes. 
I was really interested to hear in, in, in one of the interviews that we did earlier today. Yes, it's uh, quite funny. You shape-shifted all day. Yes, yeah. You've been a constant in some ways. <laughs> in one of them, I said, or you said. You, you, were, you, you talked about uh, how you were working on the stage in London. Yes. And what sort of roles were you playing, and what sort of roles did you want to play? It, it's very odd. The, uh, you know, I'm getting old enough to begin to... I suppose be aware of my inadequacies, and I, I, I don't mean this in any, you know, other than the way it sounds. I only ever wanted to act, I only ever wanted to perform. Now why that was, whether it was attention seeking, or I don't know, covering up, or trying to make people feel good, or whatever, but for some reason that was my, my lot in life, that my personality was like that. And um, acting uh, attracted me and I could never tell you why. It just did. I always say that I was incredibly lucky to be given a calling, a vocation. Unfortunately, it wasn't a vocation to be a brain surgeon or a billionaire banker, you know, that kind of thing. It was to be an actor, which is like it's the silliest thing to want to be, because you're going to live a life of humiliation and rejection for the most part. But I wanted to do it. Now, if you stop there, I say I was lucky to be given a vacation because I didn't, I didn't have to think what I wanted to do in life. What happened, of course, was so many things were put in my way, either by me or by other people, by my own fears, um, by my parents' need for me to have a career, because they worried, you know. Why wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. These days it's all different. Oh, you want to invent uh, computer games? Fine, go off and do it. Yeah. Uh, you want to be a, uh, uh, I don't know, a, a, Go on the X Factor and you know become a singer or become pop star. a singer or just famous for being famous. Go do it. Um, the world has, has definitely moved on during uh, these decades. Um, what I I just wanted to act. I didn't mind what in in a way. Um, and the really interesting thing for me because it took me some years to realize it that the the play I finally was in a week before we went to Tunisia to, to film the first, the first Star Wars, was a play that some people will know. It's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Mm -hmm. Two tiny characters in Hamlet, but in Tom Stoppard's play, Hamlet is a tiny character. And these two, uh, RNG, are nobodies. They're friends of Hamlet at university, and they're used as spies by uh, Claudius the King. So they are two nobodies who are pushed around by events, by politics, by monarchs, and eventually they die. They are put to death in England. And Tom Stoppard wrote this extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary modern classic play. If you ever see it's on, go see it. Um, it's about two nobodies. It's about Rosencrantz, who is a kind of dogged, um, a bit sort of gung-ho, doesn't think, uh, doesn't work things out, really just goes for the main thing. And his friend Guildenstern, who's much more reserved, much more intellectual, much more um, thinks about things, worries about things. And there I am, uh, a week later, playing C-3PO in the desert with, it, with this R2-D2 unit. I would say it was about three or four years, five years later, that... So, something in my brain went, wait a minute, R2-3PO, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And maybe that's how 
because the 3PO is the clever one, you know, and R2 is the gung-ho one. And um, there is a nice uh, synergy there or, or uh, uh, connection, I think. Um, but it's a classic relationship, the, the, the kind of the, the odd couple buddies, and it gives you a great dynamic to, um, to, uh, to act off. The problem for me was that uh, R2-D2 never made any sound, so I was playing off myself. <laughs> quite a, you know, not aggrandizing myself, but quite a challenge to do that. It was a bit like some uh, terrible whose line is it anyway, where you're pretending that this chair is your best friend, you know. So. Um, anyway, I got away with it. You got away with it, yeah. and, and you know. So the first time I saw the movie, and there, Ben Burt had added all those beeps and burbles. Oh, so and, those weren't there. Oh, totally not. Oh, no, no, it was, a, it was a silent unit. It was. Um, no, it was like. It was like acting next to a desk. Yeah. <laughs> or no. to a desk. Um, oh, to a desk. Yeah. Uh, and so when I saw the movie, and there is R 2s beeps and responses and whatever. It was to me, it was total magic because that was the first time I ever saw it. You know. And Ben had woven a, a conversation uh, after the fact, if you will. So, um, and, and it did work out pretty well. And now, in subsequent years, yeah. is it still done that way? Or do, oh, totally! They... Oh, all the sounds are put on afterwards. Really? Yeah. I, I would think that that would be such a, a challenge for an actor. No, they, well, I got used to it. I yeah. had to very quickly um, because it wasn't going to be done any other way. Um, and now you. Yeah, that, that's it. I'm just so used to um, doing it that way. Uh, and in fact, if I... Anyway, so that, that's... Um, so it really was improvisation. Yeah. And, and I had to kick in, because nobody told me that would be the case. Mm -hmm. You know, the first, first scene, I think I waited for a reply and nothing <laughs> happened. <laughs> You'd think they would have told me. Did George Lucas... What did he tell you about the character? Or how was it set up for you? I think he just gave me the script, because in the script it was there. Here's a character who, who told you that he was unhappy, told you he was uncomfortable, told you he was programmed for protocol and etiquette. Okay. Totally irrelevant in that world. So you knew from what he was saying and, and the circumstances in which he was placed. You know, he has to run away from a spaceship, crash land in a place he hated. What a desolate place this is. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, told, he was overt in his discomfort in a, in a quite charming sort of way. So really the script informed me and, and the audience what was going on. We, George and I don't think had many discussions about uh, his inner soul because maybe George didn't think he had one. I sort of do. I sort of wonder what he thinks about it now. Does he dream? Of electric sheep. That's right. <laughs> there, uh, there is a film that I have grown to respect more and more called uh, I Robot, mm -hmm. which has some very worrying conceptual lines in the script from Sonny the the robot. Um, way cleverer than I first realized when I first saw it. You know, first of all, it seems an effects movie. Mm -hmm. But actually, if you watch it again, you think, this is serious. There's another film recently out called uh, Ex Machina, the same thing. Um, there are writers who are really considering quite important intellectual, philosophical uh, notions of robotics, of artificial life, of artificial intelligence. And the older we get, the more we're going to deal with artificial mm -hmm. intelligence. 
and it, it can be quite a worrying subject. And given that I, I teach at Carnegie Mellon University sometimes, and uh, in Pittsburgh they have a huge robotics lab, you know, there's a lot of investment going into AI. Well, I mean, if we think of robots just slightly differently than, you know, a humanoid form, yeah. this, there are soon going to be driverless cars on the street. That's a form of a robot. There's yes. a, life life is, is pointed in that direction, which at the time that the first Star Wars movie came out, would have seemed like science fiction. Oh, yeah. My cell phone would have seemed like science fiction. Everything that we kind of take for granted today, or much of what we take for granted today, would have been as strange looking as anything in that film. Star Trek, always uh, more more science forward looking than, than Star Wars. Yeah. Star Trek, way back, people talked into their wrist thing. I mean, <laughs> now look at us. It's all gone too far. One of the most charming things that happens to me is when an adult will bring a, a, a child and say, he doesn't kind of believe you are C-3PO. And why would he? I'm some old guy, yeah. you know, white hair and all that kind of thing. And um, so I do the voice. And you see the, the sound go in one ear. And then there is an absolutely realistic time delay whilst the brain, the synapses process this, so nothing happens for a second, a second and a half. And suddenly a smile, and a, and a sense of excitement. I love that delay in, whilst they process, I hear a sound, I recognize the sound, the sound is, oh, my reaction. That is the, you couldn't buy that. I had been given that, and it gives me utter joy because it's without guile, it's it, just an honest recognition of something I did. I love that. And we talked about this earlier in the day though, but that wasn't always the case, I don't think, with you. That, that, that well, maybe the recognition right away, but also it took you... No, no, I, I wasn't... Uh, I wasn't associated with the right. costume in the, in the first movie because they wanted people to believe it was a real robot, mm. and people did. Certain stretch of the imagination there, but um, so I, I wasn't really a, a part of the first film when it, it came out, but, but that has changed. It, it, but, it, but now I got the sense from talking to you earlier today that you have a much more comfortable understanding about your place in popular culture now than maybe you did a number of years ago. Yes, uh, how would I put it, that because the the fan base and I don't really like using that word fan. Um, it sounds uh, belittling, and right. it's it's not. They've got because of the audiences around the world who clearly are, have enormous affection to the whole shebang and, and me as part of it. And you know, I've been in places where people are really quite avert about their their liking three PM. Um, I've begun to accept that this was what I was given by some power, force, whatever you call it, um, to give to the world, <laughs> he said wryly, or with a smirk or whatever. Um, I've been really lucky to, to be given this chance, and you know, you, you don't know, it, sometimes it takes a, like, like the delay in, in hearing my voice, which is a few seconds, um, here it's taken me a few years yeah. to get to that point where I can smile at having been given the opportunity to do what I did. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it's a bit of a conversion moment, and, and now I'm proud to, uh, 
to, you know, I don't boast about it. I don't go around saying, do you know who I am? Yeah. <laughs> God, if you ever hear me say that. Um, <laughs> I would say, though, that if you're calling a restaurant and trying to get reservations and they say there's no tables, do the C-3PO voice. No, a table, that, will, have, no, no, a no, table no. will emerge. They, then they'd say, and there's no table tomorrow. <laughs> I'm known in various restaurants in London only because we go there a right. lot. And, and we're, at, we're at home and that's it. And uh, I don't think people would be terribly impressed to have, were I to enter in a gold suit, <laughs> then I could have the entire room to myself. But I tend not to do that. You know. There's a lot of people who don't know what I do for a living. And if you came to our home in London, you... You wouldn't, it's, you know, there's there's one object that is Star Wars, and that only arrived six months ago. The Lego. The Lego. Just the one object. But the rest, hmm. that's my business life, if you will. It, 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 there's a story that I'd read about uh, a GPS. Uh, yes. You know, and it was your voice on the GPS, yes. and you were kind of like, enough. I, d I felt uncomfortable with me telling me very clearly, giving me instructions for, uh, for something I didn't know. And it's totally true. Uh, I found it really quite uh, bizarre. Yeah. Uh, because, were, you know, at the, I remember it was the phrase, at the, f at the next roundabout, turn left, take the fifth exit. And I am driving, I'm in France, you know, and I'm driving and I'm thinking, this is unnatural. This, the cleverness that you see, there's AI, there's artificial intelligence, right. uh, very useful unless it sends you down the wrong road, which of course it often does. Um, I wasn't entirely comfortable, and there will be many times in our lives when AI will confront us, and I think, I, I kind of don't, that's gone too far, you've, you've touched something here, that I'm not licensing you to touch it. Look, I hate predictive texting. Mm -hmm. I, I don't text very often, but when it gives me a word, I think, no, right. stupid. I mean, that's not what I want to say. And it's trying to be helpful, but it's a little too close. We are going to, to lose various skills. Does it matter? People get new skills. I mean, you see these kids with their thumbs banging around on... You see me texting, it's one finger. I, I tend to dictate all my texts and I, it's it's uh, something on my my cell phone, and and I had I was on medication a while ago that made my hands numb, and so it was easier to dictate. So I oh, started yeah. dictating, yeah. and uh, I am going back and forth with my editor about a story, and we're disagreeing on the use of a semicolon. I don't know what it was. Something so very we're, difficult. We're, yeah, we're going back and forth about it, and then finally we came to uh, we came to an agreement, and I went to text, and I said perfect with an exclamation mark. And to, to dictate that, you say, perfect, exclamation mark, and you send it. You hit send. And just as I hit send, I realized that it had auto-corrected to pervert with an exclamation mark. <laughs> and I sent that out to him. And I thought, let's just see what happens here. Let's see, let's see what kind of response that's been. <laughs> oh, at the end of today, that's a really lo lovely story. That's Anthony Daniels talking about Star Wars and C-3PO. Everything that you ever needed to know about Anthony Daniels was probably contained in that interview. He's a fascinating guy, and I'd interviewed him several times during that day. Once for television, once for radio, and again, this conversation that you just heard. So we were getting kind of comfortable with one another, I guess, and I still couldn't quite get used to hearing the C-3PO voice coming out 
of his face when he was doing it. I just felt like I was watching part of movie history come alive directly in front of me, and that was very cool. The other cool thing that happened uh, was that I showed up to the interview wearing uh, Star Wars socks. I wore one C-3PO and one R2-D2 sock, and he liked them. He was talking about them before the interview and then after the interview. And then after it was all over, he took a number of photographs of me wearing those socks. Now, I think that I may well be the only person in the world to have photographs taken by Anthony Daniels, AKA C-3PO, of C-3PO and R2-D2 socks. Anyway, that's just my own little personal, very obscure corner of pop culture fame right there. That is it. That's what I've earned. Next up is Pablo Hidalgo. He's a founding member of the Star Wars Fanboy Association. He served as the internet content manager for Lucas Online until 2011. Uh, he had a cameo in Revenge of the Sith. And then after the Walt Disney Company acquired Lucasfilm, Hidalgo was assigned a job within the newly formed Lucasform Story Group, whose main purpose is to create and maintain one cohesive canon, thereby eliminating all the previous canon, all the stuff that sort of walked away, walked in a different direction, perhaps, than what George Lucas originally had in mind. Pablo Hidalgo, maybe the ultimate Star Wars fanboy, although we get to that a little bit later on in the interview. Tell me how you got caught up in Star Wars in the first place. I'm assuming that the first one that you saw was A New Hope. Was that in your hometown of Winnipeg? It was, yeah. Um, I, like many people my age or thereabouts, got swept up into it simply by being a child in the 70s. So uh, there was really no choice in the matter. It was such a juggernaut and it was such a, a thing that appealed to, to kids in that day that you kind of grew up being a Star Wars fan. It wasn't a, a really a, a thing that I found... Uh, the, the thing that was distinct was that it, it, I kept with it as I, you know, kept growing up and going through my teenage and now adult years and found a way to make it a job. <laughs> and that's the surprising thing about all this, because a lot of us have obsessions when we're younger. A lot of us play Dungeons and Dragons or we're all over Star Wars or whatever it might be, music. But very few of us take those steps forward and turn it into a career. If you can, because I know there's a lot of moving parts here, tell me how that happened for you. It was uh, a mix of serendipity and also, uh, you know, just having the skills to make the most out of an opportunity that presented itself. Uh, you know, uh, like anyone, you, you got your hobbies and you have a career path, and um, they both kind of bolstered each other, but I never really had any real ideas of, getting a job at Lucasfilm is quite a ways away from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Mm -hmm. But um, I freelanced for one of our publishers, one of Lucasfilm's publishers that did the Star Wars role-playing game. And there was such a small community of writers back in the day that I quickly gained the reputation of someone who knows his facts and knows, you know, how to channel the Star Wars language and so forth. And and so when Lucasfilm was looking to hire a... Uh, at the time, it was a writer on the website at StarWars.com. They posted a job on their website, uh, and I didn't think, like, what are the odds of them plucking someone from Winnipeg? I just went ahead and applied for it, <laughs> not really thinking, well, you know, we'll see what happens. But I kept getting on an um, increasingly shorter short list as they, as they went through candidates, and I, I ended up getting the job. Now, I've heard you talk about growing up in Winnipeg, and... In some way, growing up there 
kind of gave you a leg up a little bit. And, and from what I understand, from what I've read, is that you said essentially it's cold a lot of the time. There wasn't that much to do. So you immersed yourself in Star Wars role-playing games and that kind of thing. Is that is that about right? I'd say that's accurate. But I'd say it's very indicative of, of, uh, of places that are snowbound for so long and so, you know, for such a long part of the year. When I was growing up, my interests and hobbies not only included Star Wars, but also um, traditional animation. Mm -hmm. And if ever there was um, an art form that benefited from being stuck indoors, <laughs> it was an traditional animation where you'd have to draw so many uh, individual illustrations um, over time. So I, you know, I, I used to volunteer at the National Film Board. I was a member of an animation society in Manitoba. And as you may know, you know, Winnipeg and animation have a long history, and I am willing to credit that to uh, having been stuck indoors and having to do something with yourself during those long months. And now you've been with Lucasfilm for 17 years now. Is it 17 or 18? It'll be 17 in February. Wow. And, I mean, is this still the dream come true? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And if anything, it's, it's suddenly gotten this, you know, boost of adrenaline and creativity when uh, we, we came, uh, not only part of the, the Disney company, but when, you know, before that, when Kathleen Kennedy uh, became president of Lucasfilm and basically started on this roadmap that would bring us back into a full production company, bringing movies to the, the theater on a more regular basis. And, and so, if anything, it's, it's, you know, Star Wars has always been this worldwide hit, but now it feels like it's actually living up to this potential that it, it's always had. So, you are the story master. You're part of the story group. Uh, and in terms of history, we're not just talking about the films and the TV shows, but also the novels, the comics, and the games. Is that correct? Correct. And, and so, you help shape and form all those by keeping the, what I can only imagine are millions of details uh, straight. And so that if someone says, okay, in Rogue One, we're going to use this character, you will then know if it fits, if it doesn't fit, if it's out of time. Is that essentially the, the, the role that you play there? That is definitely part of the role, and uh, I share that responsibility with several of my colleagues on the story group, but I've been very fortunate enough to sort of be this, this production historian, this person that filmmakers will come to and look to, to uh, you know, basically get that assurance of that authenticity. For Rogue One, it was a particularly uh, important because the movie really leads quite seamlessly into the films that we know. So in many ways, it's a historical picture. It just so happens that the history that we're matching is a fictional history, mm -hmm. but a lot of people know it because they've been living in this world since 1977. Well, it's the scroll at the beginning of A New Hope, essentially come to life. That's, that's essentially, that was John Knoll. John Knoll, who here is our, our, uh, at ILM, you know, came up with the idea for this movie, and that was his basic pitch, was taking that opening scroll and expanding it and finding out who were those rebels that stole the Death Star plans that are just only, you know, very briefly mentioned in floating yellow text at the start of that movie. Now, how far ahead do you start working on these projects? Oh, quite a bit. I mean, I seem to remember it being either 2012 or early 2013 when this germ of an idea was floated past us. So, For Rogue One? Uh, it's an interesting challenge to... Uh, uh, to live in this kind of time warp because, 
you know, we're thinking ahead many, many years, but now we're finally able to talk about a project that's been incubating for quite some time. And with that time frame, and with the the fact that there's going to be one of these movies every alternate year, so there'll be a Star Wars, then there'll be a standalone, a Star Wars and a standalone. How do you juggle all the elements with the standalones and then keep the stories cohesive? I mean, keeping track of the details, uh, it just makes my head spin thinking about it. Uh, how? Uh, tell me the, the process, and, and or tell me, walk me through a day in the life, uh, just to, to let me know how this kind of works for you. A day in the life of, you know, a Lucasfilm story team creative executive involves a lot of reading. We read a lot of pitches. We read a lot of scripts, uh, premises, uh, and those scripts could be comic book scripts. They could be, you know, uh, outlines for novels, and they could be uh, production scripts from movies. We, you know, so we inject a lot of that content, but a lot of it comes from face-to-face communication during the earliest phases of these stories. So in this case, it was sitting with Gareth Edwards and, and, and Gary Witta and, and screenwriters like Tony Gilroy and uh, Chris Weiss and, and really coming to understand what it is they're looking to achieve in the movie. And that needs to get hammered out first. It's that, that heart of the movie is the most important stuff that we, we shore up. The Star Wars details come after that, really. Uh, and honestly, it's not that difficult because we have this rich trove of, you know, more than like 40 years of history, and we have various tools at our disposal that help track this stuff. In addition to just having that fan perspective and that fan memory, um, I've said this before, everyone out there has a memory like this about something that they happen to be passionate about. It could be hockey statistics, it could be baseball scores, it could be classic car details. In my case, it happens to be this fictional universe. And so it's way more than just being a continuity cop. Yeah, it's it's, it's just basically what we want to do, and I think this is a great indication of of, uh, how important people take this. Every filmmaker, every creative that we invite onto Star Wars does it because they love it. And at the same time, there's a lot of pressure in there that they don't want to screw anything up or, or take a misstep. So we're kind of, you know, we help act as this safety net, this assurance of don't worry about, you know, that, those, those granular details. We have that. So you can focus on a lot of the other things that you want to do, um, and we will support you in, in making those creative decisions. And this is a question that quite likely you can't answer for me or won't be allowed to answer for me. But do you think that we will see at some point in these standalones uh, a a shift in tone, things like maybe a space mystery, a Star Wars comedy, uh, something like that? Or will they be uh, fairly straight ahead in their storytelling? Well, I, I think I can, I can actually answer this a bit because we're seeing evidence of this in Rogue One. Um, what, one of the great successes of Star Wars, what George did when he made the original Star Wars, is he took, he made this amazing stew out of these incredible ingredients. He took a bit of Samurai movie, he took a bit of World War II movie, he took a bit of Spaghetti Western, and he cooked it all together with a lot of great new creative ingredients and created Star Wars. Uh, what the standalones allow us to do is change the ra- ratios of those recipes. So in the case of Rogue One, you know, we've dialed back the Jedi mythology because that's not pertinent to this particular story, and we've definitely dialed up the World War II and espionage angle of, these, of this thing, more so than you might find in a traditional Star Wars movie. So I do think the standalones are a great place for that experimentation to, to basically create something new, um, 
and and uh, we're we're starting to see that with Rogue One. And I suppose that because you are one of the people who makes these kinds of decisions, uh, that it's very difficult for you to publicly engage in any kind of speculation. Speculation online about Star Wars is one of the, I mean, without it, there'd be no internet, I don't think. The internet would collapse. It would just be an empty void uh, because people like to second guess and and try and figure out what's going to happen in these movies. But you can't do that, can you, really? I can't. I have to tread lightly as much, you know, because I come from the fan community, so I do like continuing to be part of that community, but there are some discussions I have to recuse myself from um, or just take a light touch. The only thing I may get into is just ask someone, well, how do you know what you think you know? Um, Because, uh, you know, a lot of people really double down on uh, theories, and and I don't want to dissuade anyone from that, but I do want to ask the questions like, what do you think you know and what do you think you're, you're filling in? Um, but yeah, I, I can't, I can't get too involved in some of the deeper discussions. And do people try and stump you all the time on Star Wars trivia online? I mean, I see it on your Twitter page. <laughs> they do. They, they seem to genuinely ask questions they want to have answers for as opposed to test my knowledge. Right. The only time I get that sort of testing thing, and this is one of my favorite things, is if I'm ever engaging with an audience of young people, uh, say at a book signing or something like that, and what I find is when a kid asks me a Star Wars trivia question, it's actually not to find an answer. It's to prove that they know that answer. Right. Um, so uh, because they just, they just want to show off what they know as well. And, and I love that. I think that's great. And online, you are active on Twitter. Uh, how do you deal with fans that challenge you? Because you can take some heat sometimes and, and you're not shy about coming back at people. Well, it's all in fun, and I know that that passion comes from a place of really loving something, right. um, and and so it's all coming from a good place, I think. If anything, you know, I, I just try to keep that in mind. Occasionally, you know, Twitter discussions can get a little heated, but for the most part, it's it's just trying to remind people that this is this thing is supposed to be fun. Star Wars is ultimately. Uh, something that's that's fine it wouldn't have lasted this long if it wasn't that case if that wasn't the case so you know if i see someone getting a little too heated about something i'll i'll hopefully try to talk them down a bit but um you know most the majority of the interactions are really really great and really fun i think i know the answer to this uh but is it kind of like working at santa's workshop and seeing how all the toys are made for you having been a lifelong star wars fan now that you are involved years ahead of these projects, do you still get the same blast when you go to the theaters as you might have if you hadn't been working on them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's always going to be a part of you that knows what might have been, but you're able to put that away when you're finally able to show a a finished film or a finished whatever that product is, uh, be it like a video game or a book or, but, you know, a film, particularly in the theatrical audience, is, is there's nothing quite like that because you're able to get that instant reaction from them. And I could live vicariously through those reactions. Um, you know, my wife also works here at Lucasfilm, but she doesn't work in a story capacity. And she, you know, loves Star Wars as well. So I will take her to these premieres or I'll, I'll, I'll sit beside her as a new Star Wars Rebels episode plays. And I'm able to see her reaction because I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't tell her anything about what's going on. We keep this stuff, you know, pretty buttoned down. So I get the benefit of not only being surprised when an idea is pitched, but then being being able to uh, experience the surprise in someone who's never 
uh, seen that film or, or story at all. Why do you think that Star Wars A New Hope, when you first saw it, was so transformative for you? What was it that drew you in? Well, I was really young when I saw it, so it wasn't, you know, anything terribly cerebral that drew me into it because it was just ultimately this amazing uh, showcase of really cool-looking things, cool-sounding things, and just a, a place, uh, you know, this, this toy box for the imagination. It wasn't until I got older that I came to appreciate it on a, on a different level, and I think that's one of the things that's really appealing about Star Wars in that it's not... You know, it's not just uh, popcorn. It's not just eye candy. There's a layer of uh, narrative nutrition underneath that where you're able to look at the mythology and historical connections and, and actually have a conversation about what it is we're looking at. So um, I think that's part of it. I think part of the appeal is that you're able to keep engaging with these stories on different levels. And, uh, and I think that's what we've seen with it being really multi-generational as adults are sharing it with their children now. And I think it's interesting. I've seen Rogue One, and if you wanted to, I suppose that you could look at it as a timely film, a political allegory about what's happening in the world right now, or you can sit back and, and just be wowed by it. Uh, do you see these as political films? What I see them as, like, they're very human films. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, they're going to deal with these very timeless issues. Uh, I know there's like, you know, this pattern recognition of, of seeing where we are in the world today and recognizing things in Rogue One that uh, seem to connect. But you got to remember, this, this story was, you know, began its generation like four years ago when some of these issues that we talk about all the time were, weren't even, you know, a subject. Right. And you could, you could open up A New Hope and see, uh, you know, reflections, and that was from 1977. So I think that connectivity is, also, is only because these issues are timeless. They keep coming up because they're human issues, and, and it's just about how we live in this world and, and uh, how we connect to one another. I saw Rogue One earlier this week, and everyone's been asking me about it ever since. And I, I can't tell anything. I will tell them essentially yeah. what's in the trailer and nothing more because there are so many surprises, so many cool things that happen. I wonder how you're able to keep a lid on it, because you know what's coming years in advance. You don't even tell your wife. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's part of the deal. Again, I think uh, working in story is you recognize the, that a key ingredient of story is, is the order of information that's conveyed in a story. And so I would much rather have someone learn the ending of Rogue One at the end of them watching Rogue One. Right. Uh, I recognize the value and importance of that. I know other people want to peek at their Christmas toys uh, or their Christmas presents early. You know, that's that's how they work, but that's not how I work. And, and so, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at keeping this stuff uh, on the down low. Was there ever any talk, or how much talk was there, about making this film like a true standalone film in the sense that if you've never seen a Star Wars movie, I think that you could go in and see this and it would make sense to you. It would be, uh, it is, in that sense, a true standalone film. Was that deliberate, or was that just a function of, of how the story unfolded? I think it was absolutely deliberate. I mean, um, it, it's funny, where we are in the filmmaking landscape is that it's actually, uh, I would argue that it's quite refreshing to be able to go to a movie and understand it to have a beginning, middle, and end, and it's not just the first chapter of something else, and you don't need to be 
you know, think in your mind, oh, uh, I'm not going to get a complete picture here. I mean, there's obviously an appeal for that because Star Wars is a serial, but the standalones are deliberately just that, you know. Uh, there's definite benefit. I mean, you know that it connects to episode four, and there's going to be extra resonance for Star Wars fans who understand all these connections. But it was designed to have, you know, be an entry point and, and be complete. And it is. It feels that way. Now, there's a scene, though, that you've been saying that you would like people to watch before they see Rogue One. Um, I'd say, particularly for Star Wars fans, I think there's a scene that is honestly underrated because it does so much world building in just a few minutes, and it definitely uh, helped shape what the story of Rogue One is. And that's the scene of the, the Imperial generals and admirals aboard the Death Star talking about the Death Star, and uh, Governor Tarkin and Vader come in with the news that the Emperor has disbanded the Senate, and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a scene early in A New Hope. And I remember as a kid, it felt like the scene you kind of, you know, if you were ever to do this, you would fast-forward past because there's no robots, there's no space battles, there's no lightsabers. It's just a bunch of um, officer, uh, uniformed people talking. But it's, it's very, uh, I really like what George Lucas did in that scene because he was able to, to condense so much world-building into one brief scene and so much of what Rogue One is came out of that scene. And so you're already now working on the next Star Wars and probably the next standalone. Is that right? Uh, we've got a lot of things. Yeah. Working, yes. So, yeah, so, but, but, uh, I mean, we, in, in the most general of terms, I'm just saying, like, you, you are years ahead of where we are right now. Yeah, and as we've announced, I mean, uh, episode eight is next year. The yeah. Han Solo standalone film is the year after that, and then episode nine is the year after that. So, wow. uh, all these, all these uh, fires are in the island as we speak. Well, well uh, best of luck with all of those. Uh, Rogue One is terrific. The reviews, uh, which were unembargoed at noontime today uh, have all been great. I don't know. Do you care about reviews? Um, you know, I, you always like to see the enthusiasm that's out there. I try not to, you know, it's you could lose an entire day just reading them, <laughs> and, and I don't have that time to lose. But, um, you know, for, for those who get it, it's great. Um, but, you know, ultimately... It's not going to change the way you approach these things. So mm -hmm. it's great to see the enthusiasm, um, but ultimately, it's like you know, we 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 trust our filmmakers, we trust our storytelling instincts, and we're glad when it lands with people because that's that's always great. Would it be unfair to say that you were the ultimate fanboy? <laughs> I would <laughs> definitely say I am a fanboy. I mean, I'm a diehard Star Wars fan. Ultimate, I guess, is up to someone. Uh, I don't. I don't want to throw that out there because then you know you'll, you'll get a challenge at the end. I'm not. I'm not looking to defend my title. That's right. You don't want to have a start another Twitter war over that. Imagine that the fate of Star Wars is in part in the hands of a Canadian from Winnipeg. It's Pablo Hidalgo. I think it's in pretty good hands. Next up, Riz Ahmet. You know him from movies like Nightcrawler, Jason Bourne, the fantastic HBO series The Night Of. He's been on Girls. Like a lot of kids, Riz Ahmed liked Star Wars. Unlike most kids, he grew up to be part of the franchise. He played pilot Bodhi Rook in Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Physicality in your roles has always been important to you. Um, I think of The Night Of, 
and how you physically changed throughout that performance. Nightcrawler was a different thing again. Uh, was there any physical demands that you made upon yourself for this film? Um, yeah, there, there were. Um, I, um, you know, Bodhi Rook is not meant to be a soldier. He's not meant to be, uh, you know, someone who's cut out to fight in wars. Um, so I, I, I let myself kind of like just lose a bit of weight, get kind of skinny and squirrely. Um, and, um, <clears throat> you know, I had this whole kind of long hair thing going on and I uh, I kind of got the sense that Bodhi is someone who, you know, whereas like someone like Nas is someone who's paralyzed by circumstances and is almost goes into this kind of cocoon in prison. And there's lots of things rumbling under the surface, but he is very much kind of retreating into this chrysalis and you're not sure what emerges. Is it a butterfly or is it a wolf? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Bodhi Rook is someone who's like, not, uh, who, who isn't, as still, he is someone who is on the run. He's someone who's on the run from his responsibilities when we meet him. He's someone who's on the run from the empire. Who's someone who is um, constantly moving, and so that kind of sense of like anxiety and 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 and, and movement um, and the desire to escape, you know, was kind of informed his physicality. Um, and also the kind of shame that comes with that, you know, it kind of like hunches you over a little bit and stuff. So, I don't know, I, I guess, I don't think about this, that the physicality actually directly very often. I kind of just think about, you know, how this person sees the world and their relationship to different things. And then that kind of somehow kind of seems to inform the, the physicality itself. Now, getting into his headspace as a rebel, is it true that I, and I've read this, that you uh, spoke with, Iraqi interpreters who interpreted for the US government and just to sort of get into their mindset a little bit? Um, no, that's um, not exactly true. What I was saying is, um, you know, Bodhi um, is somebody who, Bodhi lives in an occupied city, an right. occupied planet. And to make ends meet and to just to get by and make a living, he, he works with the occupying force, which is the empire. Right. So um, what I said was I, I actually saw a documentary, uh, which is one that my friend is making actually called um, um, Interpreters, and it's uh, it's a documentary about Afghan and Iraqi citizens who are working with the American army to, to make ends meet and mm -hmm. and also do what they kind of see at the time as the right thing um, to help them and, and just kind of threw up some interesting stories in terms of the kind of conflicts and uh, issues that that throws up. You know, when you're someone living under occupation and you decide you need to work with or collaborate with the occupying forces, you know, it's, it's not easy. You, a lot of people end up hating you. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think you're a traitor. Um, it's, it's, you kind of sometimes live with a sense of shame or embarrassment. Um, it's not easy psychologically, you know. And is that what you took away from the research in there or was there something more? Um, yeah, that that is that is that is definitely one of the things I I took away from um, um, that that is one of the kind of main ways in which research informed playing mm -hmm. Bodhi Rook. But I would say actually that with the Star Wars movie, it's actually quite limited the amount of research you can do. 
um, it's not like you can interview people who are ex-imperial pirates yeah. and stuff. So, um, really, what what you kind of have to go with is the fact that you grew up watching these movies. So when you see an Attat or a Stormtrooper or a, you know an X-wing, it it actually has a, it triggers a memory in you and a visceral response. And sometimes that's just kind of childish excitement, and it's about riding a wave of that adrenaline and actually just harnessing it rather than going. Don't be a fanboy. Be your your, your body rook. It's like, well, where, where's your starting point? Where does, you know, it's to allow your kind of quite natural human reaction into the room is is what I learned, you know, after a while of kind of trying the other way. Yeah, yeah. Trying to intellectualize it or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. Well, you were a fan when you were young. You told me you were six when you saw the, mm-hmm. the first movie and didn't really understand it, I guess, all the all the politics involved. But what was it then about that that, that grabbed you? It was just the the imagination, and the detail. You know, you've got characters like Jabba the Hutt. You've got characters like, you know, uh, Chewbacca and, and C three PO and R two D two and Yoda. It's just so wondrous and um, imaginative. You know, and as a kid, it really leaves an impression. It really makes a mark. It kind of makes you, um, you know, want to act out your own sci fi movies, running around the house with your brother, which is what I ended up doing. You know, for years afterwards, and in a way, I'm still doing it until here I am doing it. <laughs> but um, you're doing it kind yeah, of for real now, for yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. It, interesting. The movies always appealed to me because of the the delineation between good and evil. You know, you knew mostly who was good and and who was evil, and they the, the for me that's the purity of that was something that really drew me in. And, and has stayed with me ever since I saw the first film and, and have remained a fan all these years. Um, will we see that, or are things a little grittier, without giving away any story things, which I know you can't, in Rogue One? Um, I understand the film is a little grittier, and that it is uh, a, a little different in feel than the other movies. Are you able to, to tell me Yeah, it is, it is. I think the way, what Gareth wanted to do, and... Kathy and the whole team what they wanted to do was create something that was a little bit different to the other Star Wars movies and um, a little bit more realistic in a way and felt a little bit more like a war movie so they have like you know our director of photography Greg shot Zero Dark Thirty or right. people ending up our, our VFX teams did Black Hawk Down and Saving Private Ryan so it's definitely informed by that kind of gritty sensibility and accompanying that is as you said in, in, in these war movies Sometimes there isn't a clear black and white and mm-hmm. good and bad. It's it's about a lot of grey areas, and so there is an element of that in in, in this film. And um, hopefully that's something that people enjoy. You know, you've been a fan for a long time. Uh, on Instagram, literally a second ago, I was having a look, and People Magazine is out. Let's see if it's still here on my phone. There you are on the cover of People Magazine. Uh, with this, it, it, does it blow your mind a little bit? Um, it is kind of. Um, it, it, I guess it feels cool being part of something that is popular, um, and uh, <coughs> so many people connect with. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It doesn't feel like oh look there I am. It's like oh cool you, <coughs> yeah. you know you, as an actor what you kind of look for often what attracts us to acting is being part of an ensemble and being part of a team mm-hmm. and, you know um, you know having these kind of playmates that you can kind of like play act with and, and so being part of something that's bigger than you is really what you're looking for and the Star Wars story world is so much bigger than any one individual <laughs> so it just kind of feels kind of humbling and, and, and cool to be in that family you know 
And once you're in, you're in very deep. People are going to uh, always probably on some level think of you as part of this big family now. Um, what do you think the change in your fan base will be? Or is this something that you can't think about? I mean, there'll be a Lego figurine of you, probably an action yes, no, figure. Yeah, I've seen the Lego figure as well, uh, which is... Which is uh, uh, it's very impressive, the Lego figure. It's <laughs> quite a jawline. It's not modeled on me for sure. Um, it feels, it's kind of fun. Yeah. And it feels kind of cool. And it's also kind of strange. Um, ultimately, it just feels like it's sort of a privilege and an honor to be part of a, a, a story world that so many people are invested in. Yeah. You know, I come from a background of independent films where you're really not sure if anyone was going to go and see the film. You know, and we've been really lucky that some people did see some of those really small films. But it was always a bit of a crapshoot. You weren't really sure which way it was going to go. So it's really cool just to be part of a film that you know lots of people are going to see. Yeah. Um, that's a kind of, uh, just a layer of anxiety you don't have to deal with. Of course, then get a different kind of layer of anxiety, which is people's expectations, be, yeah. but yeah. you know, it's pros and cons, isn't it? Will you check your Twitter account? Will you, uh, you know, all that stuff? Will you, will you look for the reaction? Or do you know, have you seen um, the film? I haven't seen it. I'll you see it tomorrow. So after you see it, you'll make up your own mind about what it is and what it isn't or whatever. Uh, will you, do you care what people think at this point or no? Um, I'm always intrigued to see what the response is. You know, we don't make art in a bubble, right? Yeah. Or we don't make work in a bubble. We, we make it to connect with audiences. So I'm always intrigued to see what people think of it. Um, you know, with the, with the kind of... Uh, Disclaimer that I know you can never please everyone mm -hmm. and nor do I think you should necessarily try yeah. and please everyone. So I think it'll be interesting to, to, to see what people make of it. Yeah. Gareth Edwards uh, has uh, said that, or you've said about him, that he's quite loose on set. I found that kind of hard to believe. Explain it to me because there's so much riding on this and probably so much money and you know all that stuff uh, What is what does that looseness involve? Um, it um, I think what it involves is is kind of a willingness to To let things run their course mm -hmm. uh, often he'd allow us to kind of I know we wouldn't cut, we'd just do very long takes, we'd do scenes again and again, and he would shoot different angles, and he would be stood in the middle of the room holding the camera himself, So, and the room would be kind of lit in a way that meant he could point the camera anywhere. So I guess it feels, it almost felt like theatre sometimes, you know, it was like you're just, everyone's on. It's not like, okay, you're off camera, now you're on camera. It was like anything could happen at any time. So that creates its own kind of adrenaline, and actually kind of exhausting at times but it's sometimes when you get really tired that those natural things happen and did you shoot mostly at Pinewood or were you because I know they shot some big like very big set pieces there but then they shot all over the world as well they did yeah they shot in Iceland and Maldives and uh, Pinewood and um, I was mainly in Pinewood yeah. um, but uh, sometimes felt like we were in Iceland and Maldives yeah they really <laughs> built they really build these kind of worlds for us to inhabit, which was really, really cool and such a gift for an actor to be able to kind of like step into that real world and everything is tangible. And you, do you live in London still? 
Um, I was gonna say you can sleep in your own bed <laughs> if you're in Pinewood, probably. No. Um, I do. I, yeah, I'm born and raised Londoner, yeah. and I still live in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, will you go? Is it important for you? Because I've talked to a, a number of actors who are, uh, for the, the big premiere, they want to do it in their hometown. They want to do it in their, their home city. Will London be a big deal for you? Oh, it'll be great, you know, for, to be able to take my parents along to the yeah. film and, and, and check it out. And uh, some of my family, I think that, that that's always nice to be able to share your work with. So much of what we do sometimes is like away off in some weird bubble of world right. of make-believes. And I think when you can share your work with with your family and your loved ones it's 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 nice you know it kind of bridges that distance sometimes that we have to create when we enter these like weird bubbles you know and you've recently recorded some music is that i mean something i i would imagine has always been with you but is it a, a stress release away from this big machine that must be revving up all around you with the Rogue One stuff? Is that just a way to like no. blow it out and do something a little different? No, it's not really a response to that. It's not something that kind of has happened um, because of my acting or anything. It's just always something I've done yeah. and uh, something that I hope I'll continue to do so long as I feel like I have something, you know, to, to, to say and um, something to contribute, you know, that... that it's really just it's quite selfish to be honest it's like I just need to kind of do it I've just been doing it since I was a teenager and it just comes very naturally to me so it's not really a response to anything that's happening with any other kind of work I'm doing it's just a very kind of natural part of who I am really at this stage and I'll I'll continue to kind of record and put music out and the the new record, uh, record CD, download, whatever, uh, it's political in 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 tone, isn't it? Well, um, really, for me, it's just quite a personal record. It's talking about my the reality of my day to day experiences, and I think sometimes when you hear about people's experiences that aren't necessarily spoken or written about that much, or aren't necessarily that visible in our culture, it can feel like a big shock, and it can feel like super political, right. and it can feel like it's setting out to make some kind of statement um, I definitely do speak my mind and I have opinions and I don't shy away from expressing them but the idea behind the record isn't to kind of make a political statement it's to just kind of be honest right. uh, and, and talk about m- my reality and and hope that p- many people can relate to it and thankfully lots of people have you know have been relating to, to that um, so yeah I think it's sometimes easy to kind of assign certain work with the label political if it's just the kind of stuff that you don't see a lot of yeah do you know what I mean yeah it's interesting because I think you know you could suggest that maybe Rogue One is political given the diversity of its cast making a comment on it or you could suggest it's just the art speaking you know reacting to its environment yeah I think yeah there's a temptation if anything isn't if, if things aren't necessarily fully in line with the status quo then somehow they're political yeah, yeah. or they're subversive and I think that's a kind of it can, that can be a slightly dangerous line of thinking because it's kind of it, it it's it's just a little bit uh, alarmist, you know, uh, to kind of look at anything different uh, as as somehow a, a threat. Or yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. It's uh, yeah. I, I hope that kind of. You know, our culture just keeps evolving and keeps offering up new voices and new stories. I have to mention the night of. 
we watched it, didn't binge it, and and specifically did not binge watch it. We wanted to take oh, really? the time How funny. between yeah. every episode. Most and people I know kind of knocked it out in two or three days. No, no. We watched the first episode and made a conscious decision not to because we wanted to let it sort of marinate with us. And my wife would call me randomly. It would be like, when we'd watch it on the Sunday. She'd call me on Wednesday. And it would be like, okay, I have an idea. I think what's actually happening oh, wow. is, yeah, obsessed That's with so it. That's so cool. Yeah, it was, but it was such a good show. And it, I mean, it, it does it feel like it when you're making it? It's a silly question, I know, but did it feel special because it really was? Um, or are you felt, so immersed it, it, in it? That we it's were really to... immersed in it, to be honest. And it was quite a tough shoot because it's emotionally quite heavy. We felt a great sense of responsibility, particularly after having you know interviewed so many people that had been through the prison system. And lots of stories like that of Khalif Browder coming out and yeah. Adnan Saeed. And, you know, it would just it seemed to be, you know, we're making a story about a real issue. And so that kind of weighed heavily on us in lots of ways. And we just wanted to kind of throw ourselves into it. Um, and I think that was, that, was, that was our main focus, yeah. to be honest. Rather than thinking about how it would be received, we were thinking about are we doing it justice with our kind of effort. That was Riz Ahmed talking about Star Wars, talking about the night of. If you haven't seen that, walk. Don't run to your nearest streaming service, legally, of course, and download this and have a look at it. It is fantastic television. That's it for our 40th anniversary look at Star Wars. Lordy, lordy, look who's 40. Doesn't look a day over 39. Fantastic stuff still. Loads of fun hearing about the early days when you know that there is still millennia of Star Wars stories to come. But now it's time to wrap it up. Thanks to you for coming by. Thanks to Pablo Hidalgo, Riz Ahmed, Anthony Daniels, Roger Christian. Really though, without you, there'd be no point in doing this. So thanks for coming by again. Make sure you come back every single Monday. We put a new show up every week and you never know who's going to stop by. It may be one of your favorite people. <laughs>